Wait, a podcast? A, a, a what? A podcast? Uh, that's that's look, people don't even know what a podcast is, let alone know how to download and play it. There's no way that'll fly. Uh, not gonna happen. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. On today's show, I have got a review of 2017. We have had 10 awesome guests. I've been so grateful to have all of them on the show, and they have all shared wisdom, which has been extremely enlightening to me, and I hope to you. We've had a brilliant year. So many of you listening in. I'm so grateful, by the way. We are now over 1,200 downloads or plays per month. That's getting close to 14,000 per year, which blows my brains. So if you've never listened to the show, check this one out. You're going to get five minutes of the best things I have learned from all of our guests through the year. So sit back and enjoy the 2017 Blunt Dissection in Review podcast. Enjoy. My first guest of the year was Diedrich Gelderman. Now, Diedrich, if you've never met him, is an Australian practice management guru. I was grateful to have him on the show and he gave really willingly and freely of his time. We covered a lot of ground, but the area of particular interest for me with Diedrich was leadership. And this is what he had to say on the subject. The practices that you and I see that that do well have have leadership that's up at eight, nine or or 10. Um, The bulk of practices, unfortunately, the leadership's down at one or two or in, in some cases, maybe zero. And the reason is that you know, when, when we go to vet school, we are um, combative almost. I mean, there's a certain number of us are going to pass and a certain number are going to fail. We're not, uh, we're not trying to be collaborative or to help each other. It's, it's um, you know, dog eat dog almost. Yeah. And, and a lot of us go into vet school wanting to do the best by patients, but we don't understand that, that animals come attached to the patients. Um, you know, a lot of us would probably like to have a piece of string going through the door and, um, you know, reel that piece of string in with a piece of history from the, um, from the owner and the pet coming through the trap door. Um, it's so that we didn't have to face up to the clients. And, and, yeah. and that's one aspect. And then the other aspect, of course, is, is the fact that we all of a sudden have to deal with, with as well as dealing with clients, we then have to deal with 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 people in our workplace, and, and even a in inverted commas, you know, normal vet or a normal nurse or a normal receptionist needs to be a leader. They need to lead the clients um, up their belief system path. They need to sell ideas and sell concepts on 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 whatever pet care is appropriate or horse care or cattle care is appropriate. Um, you know, for that, for that, for that patient, for the, for that practice. You know, within the constraints and the belief systems of of the owner and the budgets of the owner. So, I believe that we're all leaders and we all need to be leaders. And unfortunately, that's very deficient uh, in in almost every practice. And then at a, a higher level, the practice needs a leader to, you know, set the vision and 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 you know draw everyone towards that vision and unfortunately the the vet that ends up owning the practice never ever thought they uh, they never even considered that they needed to be a leader and, and they they don't have the skills um they've got no idea how to do it 
if they were trained and if there was someone there to help them, um, uh, th- these things are learned skills. I mean, we, we used to think that leadership, you know, you're born with it. It's a, in inverted commas, God-given gift. No, right. it's, a, it's a trained skill. And, and yes, some are innately better at it than others, but everyone can learn it. My second guess was Garrett Turley, a feisty, funny, and hugely engaging Northern Irish, Irishman I had a brilliant conversation with. And one of the topics we stumbled into was the issue of managing your inner trash talk, the inner demons, the voice in your head that tells you you can't do things, or maybe that lets fear get the better of you and stops you being able to take the steps you need to create an amazing life, an amazing career, whatever it is that holds you back. So one of the questions I had for Garrett was, how did he manage that? And what were the decision points along his journey that led to success? Here's what he had to say. You know, you have had a career that is by any measure has been successful in veterinary medicine and now you've got career 2.0 in the financial world and we'll come on to that but you've kind of gone places with that you know by harnessing that by riding that wave of you know the confidence side of things and being able to bridle or to cope or to have have strategies to deal with the you know maybe the little voice that says no you can't no you can't no you can't the the loud voice sort of one and there's there's people out there listening who maybe aren't business owners or have ambitions to do things who've who've gone the fully other way and let the negative voice win and you know and, and we know the cascade of bad things that can happen when people get in you know the the dark hole the yeah pets tend to yeah, yeah. In. absolutely and it's almost like are, are we looking at chirals almost like you know the where we've got very similar makeups in our sort of veterinary dna as it were yes but with completely different outcomes um what do you have a sense of what are the decisions or the ways that you've coped with with being you, with living in your skin that have led to success where others might have gone down a different route? Yes. Um, listen, I think about this a lot because uh, that's, that's my too complicated piece. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think actually, I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you uh, stand, if you, for example, you just said to me, you know, by any measure it's a success. Actually, I I don't feel that by any stretch of the matches. I look at my career and I think that, in, in honesty, I've been spectacularly lucky. Um, I've been lucky in two ways. Timing, that really makes a big difference. Right. Second one was having people with me uh, on all of the journeys that were infinitely superior to me and who were able to support me in a variety of ways. And these are business partners, friends, family, whatever it is. Yeah. But um, uh, one question that and I was speaking to somebody about this recently, they said, uh, and in fact, actually, I think you have a, a something you were, you were going to mention to me. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? Right. And in fact, my answer to that is, look, you are seriously mad <laughs> and you've got to accept that and you have to find coping strategies yep. and the coping strategies I've found are, because I'm an introvert yep. and so are reading, cycling, yep. you know, health and just knowing, knowing those flags for me that help me cope with things, um, help me burn off the stresses. Yep. Um, but, but I would say to my 18 year self, you are mad, but actually... That is you, and you just need to harness that in the best way you can. Because without that, in fact, the things that you have done just weren't possible because you took too many risks, you were lucky, uh, some things didn't work out, fair enough. Yep. Um, you um, 
recognized opportunities that others mightn't have done. You were confrontational and challenging with authority, which is possibly my Irish piece. And um, and lot, because of that, sounds very familiar. Free <laughs> police. I know. Familiar. I know. Um, and so by doing that, you just you lucked out. But also, I. I've tried to treat the people who've treated me well, really well, yep. and um, and try to forget the people who treated me badly, and that's it, because it's too easy to dwell. For somebody of my just completely obsessive, um, addictive personality, yep. th- there's a dark core that could eat you up, and you've got to break out of that and just just focus on the good things. Sounds sounds trite. But what I'm trying to say is that, A, I've worked hard. B, I've really been lucky. Yep. And if I, without various mechanisms of understanding myself and that self-awareness yep. about how I can go downhill, uh, there's, there's no way I could have managed it. In episode three, I travelled up to the Royal Veterinary College in London to interview five of the brightest new graduates who are about to enter the veterinary workforce in 2017. They gave very freely of their time and their opinions, and this little episode I thought was really interesting if you are considering employing new graduates, and frankly in this employment market, who isn't? Listen in as the guys, uh, actually the guy and the four girls, describe the things that matter to them. Um, as they're about to enter the workforce, the messages that they would like to convey to future employers. It's a real insight into the mind of the millennial. And I think that's an important, interesting place to hang out, particularly if you're a boomer or a Gen X employer. So listening to what the next generation of vets had to broadcast to us, the future employers. If you could give one piece of advice to future employers, what would the advice be? Just really try and remember when you were at that stage because I think it's so easy for people and I noticed this on EMS as well they said what you don't know that it's like no I don't know that I've only been doing this for three years you've been doing this for 20 years you probably didn't know that at my stage either um so I do think it's really important for people to sort of come down from their pedestal sometimes and put themselves back where they were at your stage in your career any others um, probably just give me a chance and try really hard. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, certainly I'm not the only one who's mentioned about being worried about, you know, how we're doing. Um, I think recognising that we're all trying our best and, you know, we're only going to get better and we're going to make mistakes and that we're going to improve on and, yeah, I suppose everyone's been in the same boat, so... Yeah, try and... Um, for every mistake that you point out that we've done, try and give us a positive thing as well. Yeah. I guess preferably be... seven to one. <laughs> yeah. I guess be patient because I'm. It's the same with like asking questions and things. I'm terrified of being told to stop asking too many questions, but at the same time, obviously, I do need to remember that. Like, hopefully, I will have passed exams and do know something, and I should be able to rely on myself a bit. But just. Be patient that sometimes I will ask questions that will seem a bit silly, but hopefully I won't do it as often as time goes on. <laughs> I guess if you do make a mistake, teach me why I made a mistake and how to avoid making a mistake again. Because the worst thing to do is tell me I made a mistake and then leave me there. Like, okay, well, and I make it again because it should be it should be a teaching opportunity. We're not going to stop learning. We left vet school. If anything, it's probably the time we're going to learn the most. So we need their support. 
So I'm getting empathy, I'm getting support, I'm getting patience, I'm getting feedback. Like I think you just gave future employers the playbook for how to look after you guys, which is awesome. My guest in May was Dr. Sue Ettinger, aka Cancer Vet. Uh, she was awesome. If you've never met or seen Dr. Sue speak, I highly encourage you to do to do that. She's just a dynamo. And we got talking about some of the things, some of the myths that perpetuate the cancer world that drive her nuts. And so this, this conversation has more of a clinical edge, um, but some really great practical advice on the things you can do and, and myths that she wanted to bust that would help you in private practice. So listen in to Dr. Sue Ettinger. What are some of the misconceptions about the more common cancers that we treat that you found that you fight against? And what are the things that you've discovered in your career that, that really all of us in general practice should know? I mean, the, the one that comes in my head are mast cell tumours. And I remember what I was taught about mast cell tumours, you know, you know, they're going to have this sort of three to nine month survival rate. And then I got in practice and I think the only ones I ever euthanized because of the mast cell tumour were ones that came in with very advanced metastases in the chest. But I can think of two of those in 20 years. The rest right. of them all died of other causes. Yeah, most dogs, I mean, you know, with mast cell tumors, which is the most common malignant skin cancer we see, there, you know, I tell people one size does not fit all. My parents' dog had a very aggressive mast cell tumor and it was, the dog had a lot of other health issues as well. Um, and they didn't treat it aggressively. And I told mom, based on the biopsy and the mitotic index and all of this fancy stuff, I said, mom, you know, we're looking at three to four months. The dog lived 10 months and she's like, you're wrong. I was like, yay, I was wrong. You know, so I live to be wrong. But, yeah. you know, there are many mast cell tumors that, and that's the whole point of my cancer awareness program, find them early, cut them off, get clean and wide margins, yeah. and they're unlikely to spread. And those dogs can go on and live very long, happy lives and probably have other medical issues that will be their demise, <laughs> right? So one size does not fit all, but people hear mast cell tumor. Yeah. Or, you know, my cousin, Jason and Lainey, their first dog, you know, Sammy had a horrible one of these aggressive, crazy mast cell tumors. Their current dog, Maggie, just had one of the good ones. Yep. And we talked, you know, and, but the, you know, it was like um, PTSD. Like, you know, for them, it brought back all of the emotions about Sammy. Yep. And he got sick on treatment because I, you know, because he was my cousin's dog, you know. But like, but Maggie's gonna be okay. But for them, having to relive Sammy's experience was so emotional. So I think a lot of the times with people, with you know, pet owners, and you tell them that maybe they're, you know, you tell them their cat has mammary cancer, maybe their mom just had breast cancer. There's so much that, you know, goes into. So I can tell them that that cat's gonna handle chemo better than a dog. They're thinking about their mom, you know? And so there's so many things that are tied into what we do in helping the pet owner get through it. Yes. Um, fascinating. How much of it do you think is the medicine and how much of it is the manage management of the personal circumstance and the mental state of the owner then? I, mean, I think it's a combination of both of those. And that's why that was something I, you know, I don't know that my residency prepared me for. It prepared me for the statistics and how to, you know, manage the cases medically. But the I'll say managing the client and their expectations, that's something that's come from experience of being in the exam room and wanting to communicate better yeah. um, and want to communicate with veterinarians better because, I mean, what you said about mast cell tumor, like made me a little bit angry. Like 
what do you mean that's what we learned? You know, but, but there are sometimes those are the things you learn. You're like, wait a minute, they, they're doing much better. So that may shape a veterinarian from not sending me a mast cell tumor that could be like Maggie's and could be really good. Yeah. You know, so it, it's my frustration. And that's why I lectured, like, let's get out there and give everybody really good information. Yeah. So what other misconceptions are there that, that you see that are frustrating that, that really we need to know? One of them is dogs with lymphoma still getting started on steroids before they've had all of their diagnostics and sometimes before they've even had a lymph node aspirate. Yeah. So they come in with big lymph nodes and they go home with antibiotics in case it's like a tick infection, so doxycycline and prednisone. And then they come back in, you know, um, so that's one of my frustrations. Um, what impact on in terms of survival time does that decision have? So two negative things. One, we know that, and this is in dogs, not cats, but dogs that are on prednisone before they start their chemotherapy, it makes their um, lymphoma less responsive to chemotherapy. We don't know by how much time. So okay. I, I can't say like it knocks four months off. Right, right. But we know that there's a chance that it will make their chemo um, or their lymphoma cells more resistant to yes. chemotherapy. Yeah. The other thing is maybe we haven't done all of our diagnostics. So there's a test that helps us pick their chemo and you know the, the one that tells us whether it's B or T cell. If they're on prednisone, so sometimes the vet will aspirate it, send it to the lab, start them on pred, and they come see me and all the lymph nodes are gone. I can't figure out which one it is. And so, and that's the strongest predictor that we have for outcome. And okay. So, so that messes with your ability to then have a conversation yeah. which is accurate with the, the right. pet owner manage their yeah. expectations. And unfortunately, I see that at least once a month. Yeah. And so it's one of those ones that is worth repeating. And for all the veterinarians out there who are not doing it, thank you, thank you, thank you. But, <laughs> you know, and I on the flip side, if you have a really sick dog that can't breathe because he has huge lymph nodes under his neck, by all means, do your aspirates and start them on steroids. But for that dog that's still eating well, or maybe their appetite's a little bit off, I say, hey, can we give them a different nausea medication to get them through until they come see me for over the next couple of days? Because yep. I'll get them in in the next couple of days. In episode five, I had the opportunity to speak to doctors Karen Bradley and Kim Therian. Now, Karen is a longtime practice owner and has been very senior within the US uh, political scene in veterinary medicine. Uh, held very senior positions. Um, Karen and Kim together are a part of the, the tip of the spear that is the Women's Veterinary Leadership Development Initiative, uh, an initiative that aims to get more engagement and more women into leadership positions in practice and tackle a lot of the reasons why there are so few in a heavily gender-biased uh, industry and profession. Uh, so these ladies, it was just such a pleasure to speak to. So first up, we're going to have Karen. And I thought it'd be interesting just for you to hear a little bit of her backstory, plus her fears for transitioning out of practice as she uh, thinks about the um, the transition or the uh, the succession planning process for her business, and also what keeps her going, what motivates her after 20 years in veterinary practice. It's very inspiring. So first up, we'll have Karen. I expected to go into companion animal medicine. And once I was in veterinary school, though, I actually loved the large animal and mixed animal medicine enough that I contemplated trying to do that, but I felt my confidence dealing with those animals and the people who owned them would not be as good since I hadn't grown up around them enough. 
So I did stick with companion animal. First job wasn't a good fit. I think a lot of people go through that. It was just pretty much took a job, didn't negotiate my salary or do any of the things I recommend people to do and just happy to be hired and have a job. Wasn't a good fit because it was just a one other veterinarian who was not a great mentor to me. And I ended up leaving that and going into emergency work. And that was wonderful. Trial by fire. Yeah. I think of it like the internship that actually pays. <laughs> you learn and you actually get to do things. So I wasn't standing around watching GDV surgeries. I was having to do You're them in the middle them. of the night. And I was someone who could do that and not not just implode. So that was very good for me clinically. And I moved to Vermont a few years later into the practice I'm still at now. So, so and you're an owner of your practice now? I am. And that was a little bit of an evolution because I said I would never do that. <laughs> I swore when I graduated veterinary school, I never want to be an owner. I said all the things I'm sure you've heard. Uh, too many headaches. I don't want to deal with the human resources aspect of it and, you know, fire people, hire people, manage people. I just want to be a doctor. And so I said never, but the practice I met was really the right fit as far as the culture, the quality of medicine, the right number of veterinarians. We all valued having time away from work, travel, continuing education, and staying current. So when the opportunity to buy into that practice and become a one-third partner came up, I'd already been nudged by my very astute financially father-in-law to, hey, why don't you own a practice? Huh. So I started thinking about it, looked into it further, and pretty much did like I've done a lot of things in life and just said, okay, and threw myself into it. And I've learned learn as I go. <laughs> so true for so many of us, I think. Yes. Um, the evolution of that... Can you give a little more detail on the steps that happened on your journey? And, and maybe a little more detail about the practice as well. Yeah, so the, the practice at that time was a three to four doctor, pretty much three FTE, yep. full-time equivalent veterinary practice. And we had a fourth veterinarian we added within a year of that. But at that time, the... It went down from two owners to one, and she did not want to practice alone. So my partner, Colleen, had always had the philosophy that she didn't want to be a solo owner, and she wanted partners and to be that collaborative. So she helped us. Rather than us go for outside financing, she wanted us to run the clinic with her as a team, the three of us. Lauren is the other partner. So she financed us. And we're an S-corporation. So what we did was we just structured the ability. We knew we had the financial means to do it, that our dividend payment would be equal to our loan payment. So repaying the loan through dividend payment. Exactly. Right? So it benefited Colleen as well because she earned the interest off us. And it was easier for us too. If something, she's a very wonderful, supportive person so that if you had needed to skip a payment and add it on at the end that was okay with her as well and so she um this was how what year was this that the deal was done for you guys so this was the beginning of the talking about it and planning it was 2002 yep. and 2003 is when we signed our papers and made it happen okay and i'm thinking now and 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 
about whether that deal would have been possible now, given the sort of changed conditions. Was that a very values-driven thing that um, your owner wanted the legacy of the practice to be in independent hands and to help the next generation along? Do you think that sort of thing would, would have happened now? And does that happen much in the US? Is that going on? Or is there now such a pressure on multiples because of corporate buying that people look for the dollar and not so much for the succession of their existing team members? Exactly. I mean, that is something that I think about a lot and I talk to other practice owners about a lot. And at the time, what the practice grossed being able to buy a third of it was a doable thing. Yeah. You know, if you have to borrow uh, 150, $250,000 to buy into a practice. So then that was a lot of money. Now to buy my practice, the way it has grown and what it's going to be, I'm, I am the solo practice owner now. It, it, I, I have a hard time imagining one or two people doing it. They won't be able to borrow enough. And that's where the corporation buying happens. How much has your practice grown and what happened to your other partners along the way? Well, so when I bought in in 2003, from what the practice was grossing then to now, so 14 years later, we're, we've more than doubled the gross revenue that we had then. So we've just continued in a really good trajectory of growing steadily each year, even through recession times. Yep, yep. So what's happened is that we long ago outgrew our current facility and we're practicing in a way too small three exam room practice. We do a, as much work as uh, we need six exam rooms. Right. When you do all the formulas and this industry standards. How many doctors do you have working for you now? So right now I have four doctors working for okay. me. And, and a relief one. Are you still engaged in the practice full-time or part-time? Part-time. So my, my two partners, we are all still so connected. They still work with me. Yeah. I, I, it's hard to say for me because to <laughs> me, they work with me still. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to stay with the practice uh, for a number of years, right. as long as they want to, frankly. Yeah. And what happened was the need to go to the new facility and borrow, you know, to take out a million-dollar loan and go to a new facility, build it, wasn't the right fit. One is closer to retirement age, yes. and the other one is just really at a phase in her career where she does not want to be a practice owner anymore. So it made more sense, for since I was driving this, to at the same time buy them out. Okay. So I'm going to have to ride that slide, just like you were, you were alluding to, yeah. of holding it down, holding the fort on my own. Potentially, I want my practice manager to buy in. Yes. So we're really going to work on her buying 10% of the business in the next year. I'm committed yep. to that goal. Okay. But I would like to see the legacy of my two younger associates buy my share of the business, but I think it's going to have to be uh, digestible amounts, potentially buying 20% or 30%. Yep. Uh, whether I finance them or they get outside financing, it can be up to them. Yeah. So, but I'd rather see that. I, I worry though, that if I don't encourage and foster that and enable it to happen, that I will be at a point in 10 to 20 years that the best solution is to sell the whole thing to a corporation. Yeah, okay. And question pops in my head there. So you are clearly still very, very passionate about what you do. And we're going to come on to the other areas of passion and interest that you have in a second. But what has kept you so passionate and fired up to want to invest the amount of time, the energy and money into building this practice and you still work in it? So the 
I, I still love being a veterinarian. I, I like people and I like interacting with them. That helps a lot. <laughs> it does. And I've really found what's evolved in the, the community that I'm in. I've been stable in that community for 14 years. The connections I have to my clients now has really grown, which I also love. So I know them and see them outside and they're emotionally bonded to my practice too as part of the community. So I really love that. And what's got me fired up about the move really is the, I, I just get more excited each day about the things I can do better because part of our career is getting to evolve. Some of the things we did medically when I graduated, we don't do anymore. And just like that, my clinic will evolve to being able to be fear-free and practice the way we know we should, have a dental suite with two sinks, so we can do two procedures rather than out in the treatment area type thing. So that's what's got me excited, is actually getting to practice the way I've been wanting to and knowing I need to. So that was Karen Bradley. Now let's move on to Kim Therian. Kim works at a very senior role within the organization. I'm sure you will have heard of it. They're a tiny little organization in the US called Banfield. Um, only like the biggest biggest practice group across the US and, and in the world. Kim manages at a super senior level and to, to my mind seems destined for greater and greater things. And um, what's amazing talking to her was just her humbleness and groundedness um, despite that lofty position. I cannot think of uh, a better role model for a lot of uh, not just women, but just men in the profession as well. So Kim is going to talk about her experiences um, within management and really outline her career path and her experiences with, with imposter syndrome and undervaluing herself despite managing to have what by any definition is a stellar career. So let's listen in to Kim. I started in 2006 as an associate doctor and about a year later had an opportunity to transfer to the practice side uh, and began as a chief of staff in a very, very busy hospital. It was about an hour away from my home, so it was a, a pretty extensive drive, but I loved it and I got tons of learnings. I had never been a leader. Um, and so, you know, when they proposed that, I thought, well, sounds interesting, sounds challenging. I like new challenges, you know, let's, let's try this. Um, and about a year later, they said, hey, we're opening something really, really close to your house, about 10, 15 minutes, brand new hospital. Do you want to go there? And I thought, heck yeah, it's 15 minutes from my house. But I, I don't know anything about a new hospital. I don't know how to get new clients. I don't, what, what, what is that? <laughs> and, you know, they were like, don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we'll teach you everything you need to know. We'll show you everything you need to know. You'll have all the support you need. And, uh. And, and I did, and um, we actually became profitable after nine months of being open. I had two associates. From, from New Start. Mm -hmm. It's amazingly yeah, fast from a new start. I had two associate doctors with me, so we were three docs, and I had a fantastic uh, practice manager. And um, we had this model uh, back in the day with the practice where you could be a partner doctor. So it was kind of like being an owner, but you actually didn't have to invest uh, but from a, a profit sharing standpoint, you did get some of the profit shares. Yeah. Um, and you could do a hundred percent, or you could do a seventy-five twenty-five. And my practice manager was talking to me about doing the twenty-five percent. I totally agreed with her. And when we did after, uh, you know, when we got profitable after nine months, um, she hadn't gotten the official title yet. But we got um, we got a really nice surprise, and we got a bonus because of that. 
and they gave me 100% of the bonus. And so I just calculated 25%, wrote her a check for the 25%. And I think from there, um, she was, you know, forever grateful. Um, There's that trust thing again. That trust thing again, right? She was forever grateful. And that's kind of where, for me, there, it, it sort of clicked, you know, what leadership really, really means. Um, and uh, and I went on maternity leave and I came back from maternity leave and there was a medical director position that was opening up. And my field director uh, came over and said, hey, I really think you should apply to this. And I thought, well, he's crazy. <laughs> because I'm, you know, what, six years out at this point, you know, five years out. I don't, I don't know everything. I, don't, I haven't seen every single medical case out there. I haven't seen any, every surgical case out there. I certainly can't be a medical director. Um, and he said, no. He said, you have that emotional intelligence. And that's what great leadership is about. It doesn't matter if you have all the technical skills. So I, I was like, okay, well, hey, you know, what could happen? Nothing, right? I can apply, not get it. No big deal. I still love every day what I do. Uh, and I actually ended up getting the position. And I, and I shared with Karen yesterday, I got the position and the salary they gave me was the same salary I was making. And I didn't negotiate it because <laughs> I was just so stoked that somebody actually gave me the job yeah. that I was like, yes, yes, yes. When can I start? In episode six, we came back across the Atlantic and I had the pleasure in the springtime of interviewing John Sheridan uh, Esquire. He should have an Esquire on the end of his name. I don't think he does. Um, John is the grandfather of veterinary practice management and one of my veterinary heroes. It was such a pleasure to speak to him. Um, And in this little short clip from John, despite him being at the end of his career, He's still super active, he still cares passionately about this profession, and he still has some of the best insight, I believe, into what the future might look like. And in this little clip, John describes what a future veterinary practice might look like. I think in this little clip, he gives you the blueprint, if you're thinking of setting up a practice, for how you might break the mold and and introduce a new model for the future. So enjoy this little clip of John Sheridan. Here am I as a pet owner, I bought a new puppy, and I know that it's got to be um, vaccinated and I know it's, we've got to talk about its diet and worming and all that sort of stuff. So how would I go about it? Well, I'd like to be able to, to go online, look at my local veterinary practice and read some stuff to start with. And then if I have questions, I'd like to be able to talk to somebody who would advise, who begin to advise me about what needed to be done. And in an, in an ideal world, I would want somebody to pop up here and give the vaccines or or I'm happy to go down there. But if there was a problem, I'd also could see if I I'd do a deal with the vet and the deal would be that I would pay on a monthly or quarterly basis and I would be provided with some stuff. I want to be provided with a smart collar so that my dog would be constantly rec- I mean I don't know how these things work but I mean I know that you can record pulse and heart rate and blood oxygen and respiration rate and all those sort of temperature and all those sort of things. If it had a lesion, I'd quite like to be able to have a little gadget that I could look over my dog at the lesion so the vet could have a look at it. And I'd be happy to use any other bits of gear that the vet might give me so that they could do a 
I don't know, blood glucose or whatever it may be. If the if if it was decided that I needed a professional to see the dog, depending on my circumstances, I'd like to be able to say, what time will you be up and have a look at Charlie? Um, and if Charlie had to go in or if Bess had to go in for some operation or procedure, I'd like to be able to for somebody to pick it up or I'd be able to take it. That is, I'd, I'd, want, I'd, I'd want to embrace better communication, better IT, and I, clearly I don't know all the... I mean, I just, I'm just, i just amazed. I know now, you know, this, this internet of stuff that fridges, televisions, hoovers, almost anything in the house is, is now is a computer, is computerised, isn't it? It's connected right. with other things, that's right. smart meters and all that. Skynet is alive so, and well. Yeah, so, that, so that's, a, that's a world which is... It's totally beyond me as an individual, as an individual, but I'm aware that it's happening, yes. and I could be excited about about its impact on my profession. So that, as you say, the role of the vet is likely to be a very different specialist bit of that service, and the nursing bit a specialist bit of that service. But the the technical the technical expertise, um, we've got to embrace that technically. And, but I do understand that that will raise regulatory issues for the Royal College, uh, but they will be raised and discussed and determined, and it will happen. And as always, the regulatory bodies in this country and around the world will adapt what their, their attitude to what's happening in the marketplace. It happened with advertising, it happened with, um, well, particularly with advertising, and particularly with discussion about fees and all of those things. All of those things have happened, and two or three years later, the Guide to Professional Conduct is adapted to take account of what's happened in the marketplace already. Episode seven, we went to Australia. I see this is a global podcast with a global following. And so I had the opportunity some, maybe even 18 months, two years ago, to meet an incredible guy called Dr. John Dooley, and his story just captured my imagination. John is an amazing fellow, a very humble fellow, and he was uh, brave and courageous enough to share his story about uh, his life in veterinary medicine, which included uh, depression and a suicide attempt. A story that really is not that un unfamiliar to many of you, I think, in veterinary medicine. So I really wanted to put this issue under the spotlight with blunt dissection. And so John was good enough to come on the podcast. And I also invited on a psychologist who works within the veterinary industry, Nadine Hamilton. And so in this clip, which is a wee bit longer, because again, it just was hard to trim back the knowledge and the takeaways from this conversation. There were so many, it was so deep. If you, like if there's one of the podcasts you want to listen to in full, this is the one that might I don't think it's over-egging the pudding set might just save your life. The feedback I've had on this podcast has been insane. It is the most popular one, unsurprisingly, given the topic. And the personal notes that I've had from people around the world saying, this podcast made a difference. This podcast shone some light in my life when I was in a dark place. Um, it makes the whole year's worth of effort worth it just to have that sort of feedback and, and hopefully that sort of positive impact. So listen up as as John and Nadine discuss the issue of suicide and, and John in particular discusses the sorts of things and routines he does to try and manage uh, depression and keep himself in a positive frame of mind. So over to John and Nadine. Um, it was 
I think essentially a very a very minor thing. Um, and I will spare some of the details, um, and that's probably the only thing that I would would keep to myself in this context. Um, but I think I got a sudden had a sudden realization that the prospect of continuing to do things the way that I was doing them forever might not sit completely comfortably with me. Um, it was, a, and this is going to sound vague and nebulous, but it was to do with the fact that working the way I was distinctly limited other possibilities and this particular thing happened and I think it just probably rocked me to my core, but I remember thinking about the what the trigger factors were and thinking, well, it's only that. You know, this is a really small thing. Why the hell am I reacting to it with such intensity? Yeah. That that sta- that staggered me. I thought, no, no, no. This this is just a completely disproportionate response yep. to this little bit of new situation. But to put it in a nut in a mm-hmm. nutshell, I remember thinking, where the fuck am I, and how the fuck did I get here? And that was a very that was a very distinct sensation at the time. Which and and I I think I could see that that gave some indication that I'd been running on autopilot in some way or emotional autopilot for several years. It sounds like you woke up from, from a dream almost. Uh, it's the sort of thing you would say if you woke up from a dream, isn't it? So I just, yeah, I, I think I just, I just copped an absolute thunderclap. But the, sud- the suddenness of it, um, I believe I cannot overstate. It, yep. you know, it, may have been, it may have been 24 hours, it may, may have been two days, but I certainly think it wasn't a week. I just suddenly went bang. And the the intensity and the speed of the reaction just of itself totally floored me. And so did did the the reaction was the falling into de- de- depression, or did you go in that time frame from being essentially functional and okay to I see no way out of this but to end my life. Did that happen in yes. the space of days? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what the timing on that so much was, but but my my symptoms were the most dreadful mental agitation. Yeah, it was just agitated, agitated, agitated. And as I say, you know, it felt like my head was a can of serpents just writhing away, and it was it was appalling. Um, and um, you know, I, I remember. You know the 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 edge has gone. The edge has gone from the sensation, but I still remember it acutely enough. Sure. Um, so within quite a short space of time, I think I was deciding, you know, to believe that I can endure this. Yep. But I can't remember quite how long it took to get to that point. And I say because nothing much was available in the way of resources, and because I was a, I'd been raised a fairly stiff upper lip sort of person. I just sort of thought, well, okay, carry on. And so, how long did you carry on for before you sought help, or, or you know, how did that reaching out for help manifest itself? Well, I, at some stage now, and it is like, likely to have been weeks. Um, I went to the GP and said, "Look, I think I'd better get referred to a psychiatrist." Yeah. Um, so he did. Um, I asked to be referred to a psychiatrist some distance away, so I could try to keep all this private. Uh, um, anyway, I decided after about five sessions that that, that form of 
intervention, which wasn't in fact intervention at all, was completely useless. I mean, I had about five sessions of, of sitting there with no prompting about anything at all, just yeah. sitting there and with the, the relevant um, specialist waiting for me to raise points. And uh, as a scheme of providing help for me, that didn't work one scrap. So I gave that away and uh, sort of got on with some other things, really. But, you know, I've no doubt, Dave, that I should have been, I should have been medicated. I probably should have been hospitalised, you know, all sorts of things, I would think, thinking back. Yeah. But um, it wasn't offered. Okay. And nor did I. No, and, and I probably wouldn't have asked for it anyway, right. feeling that I had too, too many other responsibilities. So, Nadine, this seems like a, a, a good point to, to bring you in. The experience, as I said, from speaking to others who've considered or attempted suicide is that there do seem to be certain things that are commonalities. Is John's experience, now you've listened to it, typical, Nadine? Or what's, what's your take on, on the way this happens? I guess, um, too, and, and thank you, John, for sharing that. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your sister and your dad as well. You know, it's obviously very traumatic things to go through and I think as I was listening to the story and then you know at the point where you sort of went okay enough is enough and had that breakdown for want of better for want of a better word um, I guess some of the thoughts that came came through to me were it's, it's sort of like opening a Pandora's box so you know when there's trauma or you know that kind of grief obviously like losing your dad um, you know was a big part of that and then if that hasn't been resolved or like if you haven't been able to grieve effectively or appropriately or even acknowledged that grief it's still just sort of sitting there in the in the background so I'm probably showing my age here but it reminds me of back in the old cartoons you know and the witch is out there and she's got her big black pot boiling and stewing stuff and the steam's there and she's got the flames underneath it it's like all of these things that we don't quite want to accept or to acknowledge or to deal with for whatever reason just sort of get thrown into this pot so we're still able to carry on with everyday life because it's just sort of sitting there in the background it's it's brewing then obviously losing elizabeth i think probably then reinforced a lot of the grief from losing your dad as well so it sort of brings all of that up and again if that was too painful that might have been put to the side i know when you were talking about not really processing or not having um many recollections of sort of where you were at at that time or sort of how everything was going on for you, that, again, that could have just been sat there in the pot um, and just brewing along. Then if you add in the stressors and the pressure of working in a vet practice, um, which I think everyone's well aware is a, a very stressful um, occupation and position to be in, once that had built up to such a point where you're like, I cannot do this anymore, you know, because during that journey, it might have been, oh, you know, I don't know how to do this or I'm not sure how I'll manage that and I've got this patient or client that wants to come in and now I've got this one. So all the demands of being a vet that just sort of creep up but along the way they might have also just been pushed off to one side in that pot until such a point as it's like this pot is now full and it cannot handle anymore. It's going to boil over. If you try and put one more thing in there, it's going to just boil over and then everything comes out. Um, and I see that quite a lot, um, particularly with depressed people, with suicidal people. It's like this is all just too much. And I think bearing in mind, you know, the suicidal ideation is a symptom of depression. And so for some people who are in that headspace, 
when they're that depressed, and I, I think, um, and that was where I think some of those expletives came in, <laughs> John, um, you know, with how did you get there? You know, how did this happen? And it seems like it's crept up overnight, but it can also be that things haven't been dealt with. So they've just been pushed to the side, pushed to the side. And because they haven't been sort of at boiling point yet, they haven't had a major impact until all of a sudden everything comes up. And so when when someone is in that place and they're feeling depressed and particularly, you know, with severe depression, it can be, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this situation? So, you know, one option is, yep, I could go and see my GP. I could get referred to a psychiatrist, um, as you did, John, or I could see a psychologist. I could talk to my coworkers. I could kill myself. I could just keep going. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. And then all of a sudden that that thought there is like, wow, if I did kill myself, then I wouldn't have to deal with this pain anymore. I wouldn't have to deal with the dramas and the financial pressures and dealing with all these different uh, difficult customers that I've got. And so it, the thought then, the seed is planted. And for someone who isn't thinking rationally, which is quite often the case um, for a lot of people when they are that depressed, it seems like the ultimate option. Um, but unfortunately, you know, obviously it's not an option that we want to <laughs> recommend and put forward. But what can happen is they're like, yes, that's the answer to my prayers. That will take all this pain away. And then once that pain's gone, then I'll be able to come back and continue living my life as normal. But without, again, the rational mind would say, well, hang on, if you're successful with your suicide attempt, there is no coming back. It's final. It's done. It's dusted. Um, and that's where, again, you know, the rational minded person would go, yeah, suicide's an option, but hey, I'm not going to do that. You know, that's not a path I want to go for because I have got a family or what, you know, I don't want my kids to grow up without a parent or I don't want to um, give the impression to my colleagues or my family or my friends that this is the way to deal with things and this is the way out. But for someone in that place and in that big black hole where you just can't see a way out of it, it is a very attractive option. In episode eight, we bounce back to the UK and another of my veterinary heroes, Dr. Oh, oh he's going to get mad with me. Not Dr. Professor Stuart Carmichael. And Prof. Carmichael uh, is uh, a surgical god in the UK. Um, he lectures all around the world and his specific area of interest is the OA um, method of fracture fixation and also... Um, managing arthritis as well they're his sort of big topics and he's doing some pretty cool stuff within the veterinary space to create better use software and technology to create better engagement between practices and pet owners to manage chronic disease definitely a guy to keep an eye on so in this little clip actually we talk not so much about that but we talk about the system of training surgeons um, which I think is just a learning system in its own right. And so I think very applicable to the way that we should be thinking about how we train the vets of tomorrow. Stuart is extremely well placed to talk about this stuff since he has been the head of not just one vet school, but of two. He's, he's headed up Glasgow University's clinical division and the Royal Veterinary College in London. So uh, Stuart doesn't know about training veterinarians is probably not worth talking about. So listen in as Stuart gets deep and I poke him a little bit to uncover his opinions on what's going on with, with training of our, our future vets and how we might approach that a little bit differently. So I give you Stuart Carmichael. I don't think there's an easy answer. I think that um, one of the important things is to separate principles from techniques or problems. Uh, because, and I, and I think that, that that's the, the way I can 
I had I, I learned are two key things. You worked on your basic principles because as a surgeon, these were the things all surgeries based around good technique and the, the, the kind of problems and the specifics of that come on top. Uh, we used to have huge arguments about how we taught surgery and why at that, at that time the big argument was we should teach more and more and more space, um, which the argument's still raging just now, but that was like, like a technique. Whereas if you teach, if, if the, the students were exposed to lots of different surgery, they could see the same things being used again and again and again yeah. in different problems. Yeah. And, and And I think that the... There are a couple of other key things. Preparation is huge. I think one of the things that people don't understand is that the nervousness and the anxiety n- never goes away. It's not a natural thing. You've got to prepare. And that's and I, I particularly need to do this because I need to get my brain organized. And suddenly it just clicks. And I know I've got the confidence to go and do something. But then I've got plan A and plan B and plan C. For, as a surgeon, when you go into theatre, and, and being a surgical clinician, uh, the downtimes in theatre, that's, that's where you relax. Yep. The, the, the uptime is dealing with the clients and, 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 and doing all that stuff. But the, the reason it's downtime is that you've thought everything through before you get into theatre, and your biggest objective when you go into theatre is getting out of theatre. Right with a successful result yep. following the game plan. Yep. That sounds, and it, I was having a conversation with a pilot for BA recently mm. who I'm working on to try and get to come on the podcast because I think there's a lot of symmetry mm. to an extent between what we do, like the stakes are quite high if it goes wrong, but there's also a gulf of differences in that everything is so proceduralized yeah. in the airline industry versus everything seems so ego-driven. And what I mean by that is people do it their own way. Yeah because they think that's the best way or the first boss they ever met's way yep, more yep, accurately. Yep. And that leads to, you know, complication rates and less yep. than ideal things. Whereas what you've just described, not just sounds like a pilot's approach, you know, having, okay, we're going to map this and log this flight plan, mm. but if X happens or Y happens, here's the detour airport yep. here and there. It also sounds a lot like a sports, you know, an, an, an elite sports mm. person who maps out the golf shot or the the rugby play that's coming up next mm. and they've thought through those options. And that sounds like that's maybe one of the crucial elements of success as well. How do you how do you cultivate that as a or do you need to cultivate that's just inherently part of you to be so structured? No, I I no, I, I think that comes from getting into bad places. Yep. Uh, and learning from that yep. and, and deciding you're not going to be in that bad place again. Which comes back to the first part of the question is is how if if that's part of the process, are we giving our current undergraduates and young vets in general practice where everybody starts, Mm. are we giving them a fair crack of the whip just now? And the next question is, is it right that they should be getting a fair crack of the whip? Because the counter argument says it's Mm. actually far, far better trained people with certificates and diplomas and specialists and Mm. And fellows, and congratulations on becoming a fellow mm, of the Royal College this year. There's an awful lot of people in that space now. Mm. It seems much more busy space than perhaps when yeah. you first got into it. Is it right that the surgeries that maybe once would have been done in general practice are now being done more? And is it even true? Like, is yeah. that is that yeah. more of a staple of the, the diplomat's workload? I mean, again, a very complicated question, Dave. Um, <laughs> Not that I'm trying to draw you know, into change the world. And, uh, yeah. um, basics are always basics. Yeah. And I think that 
there, there's a need, and, and I guess I was driven by need when I chose my career direction early on when I, I wasn't having a lot of support. The problems were mine and I had to solve them. Yeah. And, and the need for me was the animal's need. Yeah. That I had to do the best job I could. Yeah. And the way I did that was I tried to get as much information as I could so that I was, and I, and I used to spend hours at night beforehand going through books, preparing, looking at all different ways to do things. And then again, I just then decide myself what I was going to do. Yeah. So I wasn't getting into theatre and making it up. Yeah. Uh, and that gave me the, 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 the confidence. And I don't think anything's changed with that. One of the things about hierarchies and and, and and this is controversial. You talk about certificates and diplomas. Uh, that that is a, a level of training, and it is like sports. Yeah. Um, where if you if you know the right way to do things, you've got the principles. You should be better at doing the practice. Right. However, that doesn't deny everyone the ability to do that. It's just that they've been through a more structured scheme. Yeah. And I think that everyone can actually, as long as they know their limitations. Yeah they can still better themselves yep. without having to have these extra things. And one of the things you learn in life is that you, you meet lots of people. Some people are famous. Some people are kind of well uh, rewarded. Some people are well qualified. But there are assholes and non-assholes. <laughs> and and uh, no matter how well qualified and how famous, you can still be an asshole. <laughs> Uh, and, and I think that's a good thought to remember as well. Yeah, I've, you know, there are some really great clinicians out there yep. who do fantastic jobs and they're so humble. Yeah. Uh, and some of them have got great qualifications, some of them have no qualifications. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> that's all good. That's all good. Episode nine was a super energetic conversation with the effervescent Danny McVitie. Danny is the CEO of the Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice organization that delivers end-of-life care to animals across America. She is crazy energy. This podcast was a, a real eye-opener in terms of the way that other people in our industry are thinking about our industry broadly, with some also some great tactical takeaways on how you manage your people and, and what it means to sort of um, engage people within organizations and keep them tied to us within the veterinary industry. So sit back and listen to Danny McVitie. I think that we have more jobs available. The industry, the, the market has turned back around. It's not that the veterinarians left, it's that the opportunities for us are boundless. And now we look at graduating 85% women and then let's, the vast majority of them do not have children in school. You know, Many of them have delayed marriage and everything. Yeah. They're going to get out and we're going to have this finite pool of doctors and let's just say on a is very low ball a third of them go off and get married and then have babies right? right and they drop down to let's say another third of availability i don't think we understand what we're going to be facing in the next 10 years it's really going to be amazing i'm halfway excited about it mainly because i can't not be excited about it <laughs> there's no use being worried about it right what am i going to do yeah i keep thinking that i should actually um, start a vet school honestly that's probably one of the better ideas is start one that's completely focused on you know very consumer centric medicine but to get back to what you said, what are we doing differently? Yeah. There was this TED talk that I saw a few years ago that um, talked about passion. Yeah. 
And he said that three components of passion. And who was the speaker? I honestly don't remember who the speaker was, but it was quite a long time ago before the TED, you know, really is what right, it was. Right. But the speaker said there's three components of having a passionate life is freedom, growth, and contribution. And there are a lot of corporations, especially, and, and one of them is the, the largest corporation here. And, and they actually had an attrition rate that was close to 30% a couple of years ago. Yeah. But what they did is they started calling back these people that were leaving and saying, how can we make you stay? What can we do? And they all said, I want to drop down. I want, you know, to part time. I want to move. And that's one of the things that we've done is really listen to people because we honestly I can tell you that you can't not listen to them because the alternative to listening to them is losing them so you must if you have somebody that just you know can't handle the schedule or needs even a company car or something you've got to listen to them and decide whether or not you can afford it but more importantly it should be what can you afford not to afford it so when somebody says I'm strained Danny you know I'm doing too many appointments okay we're gonna cut it down we're going to do this. We're going to adjust this. And we have these personal relationships with the doctors that work with us. And I'll tell you, the most important employee or team member, because even I don't, rarely use the word employee, it, right? but the too. most important team member that we have is our practice managers. And those are the ones that are constantly talking to our doctors. And they know that they are the servant leaders of the doctors that they represent. And we have 108 doctors with us right now. So it's actually, it's not huge. We have a personal connection with everybody. Right. And it's very important to me that we have that personal connection to everybody. Yeah. Those practice managers are there to support the doctors in the way that they need it. So if somebody hasn't had a date night, you know, in a year, then we're going to go give them a, a gift certificate for that. Heck yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? The things that are, are possible, if you just care about somebody, sending a $50 floral arrangement to their house because, I don't know, they had a bad day. That's the best $50 you can spend in that week is Amen. to have that person support it. Now, they're going to not turn down an appointment that's coming in the last minute that you're open, right? Just because you care about them. And yeah. we actually have a, a framed quote that I said, and then they framed it for me. <laughs> uh, in our office, it says, the way we treat each other is the reflection of how we treat the families that call us for help. And there's a Buddha saying that has this, how you do one thing is how you do everything. You can't treat your team members like crap and then expect them to treat your clients with compassion. You treat them the way that you would like them to treat everybody else. The behavior you want to see from everybody you else. You have to right? emulate it. Absolutely. So you employ like flexible working shift patterns. Can people, you don't operate from a physical location or is it all mobile services that you're delivering? Tell me how this thing's structured. We have our, our headquarters in Tampa. So our, yeah. our main office is in Tampa with all of our support team. Yeah. And then our doctors work on a mobile basis. Right. And that's kind of the part of the freedom, part of the passion, right? The freedom, yeah. the growth and the contribution. Yeah. So they all travel to the client's homes and we do a lot of support things like even giving them an audible.com account so you can listen to audio books. So when you're on the road, and podcasts. And podcasts, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, listen to all these things that help you stay motivated and help you yep. feel like you're contributing and growing yep. also. Okay, so that's some freedom. Talk to me more about the growth then and the contribution then. Right. And the growth is something that is really very specific to everybody's particular wishes. Some people will call us and say, Dan, I just want to do more. Well, let's, let's talk about it. You know, what are your ideas? What are you great at? Oh, I love writing. Oh my gosh. And write me something. Like, we know all the, you know, some people that would love to put that in, in some type of platform. And luckily, Mary and I, you know, know some people and, and we could just send off an email. And we've gotten quite a few of the doctors that work with us and even some of our technicians and support team, if they write something, they get it It actually published out there. And it's such a cool thing for us to be able to provide them with that. Yep. And then the contribution as well. We have this other part of who we are, and we're continually developing this, which is exposing our team to the impact that they make on families. 
And so I'm not even going to give it away, but this year our Christmas present to our entire team is going to be exposing them to the impact. And last year, our Christmas present to our whole team was a personalized paw print necklace of their own pet. So they got to wear that around their neck. So they remember why they're there every single day as well. My final guest of the year was my good friend, Dr. Andy Rourke. Now, Dr. Rourke, as you probably know, has an enormous Facebook following and does a lot in the social media space and a lot of promoting our profession, typically in the US. um, uh, And he works promoting our profession out to pet owners, but he also works very motivationally in presenting the profession in a good light within the industry. Um, Great guy to talk to. And I asked him about how do we as individuals within practices or practices generally use social media to build personal brand uh, so we, we we went there in this part of that conversation and also we talked a little bit about the intrusion of the digital world into our personal space as well so here's a short clip of my conversation with andy uh, from the podcast that aired last month in november enjoy let's just be honest and be candid i, I guess about about yourself and, and about what you care about because people can spot a liar and they can spot they spot a fake really easily and yeah. so you know talk about what you care about and what you love and I just started talking about what it was like to be in vet medicine and what our profession is like and I, I do love it I get fired up about it and so I just started from the very beginning telling stories about things that I loved in practice and I just started sharing things that made me laugh because they made me laugh and they didn't come off as manufactured and I wasn't trying to write jokes I was honestly just noticing things that we all see that make people laugh and so I put these things out and that's really the whole essence of a personal brand is just being authentic and genuine and so I have this certain it's a certain style it's a certain type and there's probably some people who do not like it they think I'm a doofus and you know and he, he he wore a dog suit on a video like no doctor does that and I heard from those people they were very open in sharing with me their thoughts and I, I and absolutely and I totally got that but there was a ton of other people who were like I love how dorky and happy you are and how you talk about vet medicine like I, I love it and it's not that what I say is great I'm not the smartest guy in the room by any stretch but I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve in a lot of ways. There's and, there's only two of us in this room just now. So <laughs> like, right. I don't think you were paying me a compliment there because I don't think I would describe myself in that way. Right? We're in a race to the bottom. <laughs> I'm possibly not the dumbest guy in this room, but I'm definitely not the smartest. <laughs> we, may be, we may be wrestling in the, in the mid to lower tier, <laughs> but, but you get the point, you know, it's, um, it's purely about just being yourself because people are starved for interaction with other people and they want to know their veterinarian and it's not about saying what people want to hear it's about saying what you believe and then the people that that resonates with finding you because that's how you build the clientele that you want and that's how you build the practice that you want is not saying the thing that's going to bring everybody in it's saying the thing that's true to you that other people hear and say that's what i want in my veterinarian so let's talk about this for a second, because I, th- I think we're, we're, we're getting into some interesting wars now. So digital landscape that we now all exist in, like it or not, the matrix, let's just call it what it is. 
social media is supposed to build up our connection, but we all have our faces down in our phones all the time and we we'll bump into things and you'll get run over in the street because we're not looking. We're, we're always looking at updates on Facebook and we're getting our little dopamine hits from how many likes and whatever. We are in the business of building relationships. Like that's what vets do. You know, we, we trade, I think, much more on our ability to build uh, trust, build rapport than we do to trade medicine. Like if you could give me one of those two skills, mm-hmm. be a good clinical doctor or be a good builder of relationships in the exam room, I would take the exam room one because that's what the clients are going to respond to. Mm-hmm. And I'd find somebody else to do the clinical bit. How is our interaction with these devices, which seems to be creating a, a, a growing gulf in relationships. Like I was sat down, I'll tell you a funny story. Like we sat down at dinner, it's over in Australia recently and uh, sat down at dinner in a restaurant, really like this restaurant. And it was myself, my wife, my daughter, and we we're chatting away. And I'm not claiming I'm innocent of having my head, you know, my face in the phone from time to time. The table next to us had a husband and wife sat next to each other and their two children sat opposite them. Two kids had iPads on the table and were watching uh, movies. I think the son was playing some sort of computer game, headphones on. Mm-hmm. They're at dinner in a restaurant. The wife had her head down in, in her phone as well. And the guy was just, he sat there. He might as well have been on his own, staring at a beer, like, like just staring at the distance, drinking a beer. And for like maybe that was his happy place. I don't know. But I looked at that and I thought, wow, we are social creatures. We are hardwired to interact and, and, and that's our sort of tribal element. We're, like I'm, I'm concerned we're losing something here. We're losing the ability to communicate in a way that we're programmed to do. How do we maintain that in, in this digital environment? How do we maintain the trust? And how, you know, is it possible for us to use these things to augment that? So rather than using it as a saying, okay, this is bad, this is a barrier, because I don't believe that and I don't think you believe that, how do we go about making it like augment the relationship rather than replace the relationship? Yeah, so the best analogy that I heard for this was there was a, there was a book, and it was a number of years ago, and you know it because it's called Hamlet's Blackberry. And so it was back when people saw Blackberries. The way that they described it was, you know, all those little texts and those little notifications and stuff that you get – Imagine that you were just in the world and then those notifications are people walking up and trying to talk to you. And if you think of the notifications and checking on your phone as someone walking up and talking to you, I think that gives great perspective of how we should engage with this. Because I'm not going to wake up in bed with my wife and roll over and just start talking where, to some random. Where, where, like, where are you going with Like, this? hey, Dave. Hey Dave, glad you're here. I've been waiting to talk to you. It's like no, yeah. like I would never, I would never call you before I had coffee, yeah, or you know, anything. Yet I will roll over and look at Facebook first thing in the morning, yeah, which is essentially me checking in on Dave or checking in to see what's going on, yeah. And that's ridiculous. And the same thing is like if I'm sitting there having dinner with my wife and my kids, I don't want people coming up to my table and trying to talk to me about random stuff. Like I, I don't want that sort of intrusion into my life. Now, there are times throughout the day where I'm like, hey, you know what? I'd love to check in with my friends and see what's going on and, you know, and see what I, can, what I can do for them. And that's the time I'm going to check my email and I'm going to you know, 
check the notifications and and that just for me that metaphor has helped me keep a healthy perspective of of keeping boundaries you know and i just i don't want that intrusion when i'm having dinner with my family and i don't want it you know last thing before i go to bed i don't need to know what's going on and have people via email tell me hey you're overdue for this thing i need this thing from you I, I don't want those 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 intrusions, and so I, I kind of treat my social life that way. I still definitely participate. I think we're all as a society going to have to come to that point of I think we went through this phase where we've just like got more connected and more connected and more connected, and at least for me, I think it's probably true for you. Now I'm getting less connected and less connected and less connected, and I check my email a couple of times a day. And honestly, I took Facebook off my phone a while ago, and I'm like Captain Facebook. Yeah, I did the but same I, thing. I just. You know, it's it's too big of a of a pull for me to have it on my phone, and I would just I would get a moment of cl- of just downtime, mental downtime, and instead of just enjoying it and putting my brain in neutral for a second and resting, I was like I would panic, like oh my god, I have nothing to do, and and out would come the phone, and I would start looking at you know at Facebook, and I think that that's just sort of a learning journey when you when you start to see that and go, this is not productive behavior, this is destructive behavior. So that's it. That's a wrap for 2017. I have had an absolute blast recording these podcasts. I would love your feedback. Um, Have you enjoyed them? And which guests have you liked? Which questions were the best questions? And for 2018, what I'd really like to know is who would you like to have on the show? It's been an absolute ball doing them. I'm happy to get on a plane and fly pretty much anywhere. And I'm in the very privileged position of flying around the world and and presenting and speaking at conferences so I get to meet all of these awesome people. So who do you want to hear from? Who do you want on the podcast? Do you want more clinical people? Do you want more business people? Do you want more political people within our sphere? Would you like to hear from some people out with our industry who maybe can give us some insight into tackling some of the challenges we face within our industry? Let me know. And of course, if you have enjoyed the podcast this year, please, please, please do me a big favor. Jump on Facebook and like my page. It's facebook.com forward slash Dr. Dave Nickel. And if you had a second, jump onto iTunes as well and leave me a rating. Five stars is the best, obviously. And you can also just leave me a little bit of feedback, a comment. That would be awesome too. Have an awesome Christmas and New Year. I'll see you in 2018.